0: hello everyone i just wanted to pop in here real quick and let you know that this week's episode is going to be a two-part episode we're going to have the first part of the episode this week and then tune in next week for the second part and trust me you guys you're not going to want to miss it it only gets crazier so with that being said let's jump right on in to the first part of this episode hello everyone what is up welcome back to another episode of killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i am your host of killer instinct before we get started make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday as well as on youtube every wednesday as well for the video version and you are not going to want to miss it now you guys today's case All I can really say is buckle up. This is going to be one of the crazier cases you have heard in a while, and I can almost guarantee it. I am incredibly fascinated by this case. I have been racking my brain about it for a little over a week now, just trying to dissect every possible theory, every possible outcome, trying to understand what in the world happened and i'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it today we're talking about the unsolved brutal murder of robert juan so with that being said let's jump right on into it today Robert Wan was born on June 1st, 1974 in Manhattan, New York, and was raised by his parents in Brooklyn. Robert was a fourth-generation Chinese-American who graduated at the top of his class as valedictorian at Xavieran High School. And during his time in high school, Robert began to have a great interest in politics. He went on to attend the college of William and Mary, and it was at this college where he would meet some of his closest friends. Robert's friends describe him as their go-to person. Robert was always the one giving the best advice, being the sounding board, making the witty comment when someone just needed a pick-me-up. He was always everyone's comfort person. And overall, Robert was a very kind and generous person. While he was attending William and Mary, Robert was a part of a secret society club at the college called the 13 Club. And the 13 Club consisted of multiple students, men from the campus. And the purpose of this club was to share anonymous acts of kindness to people all throughout the school. And Robert was a part of that club along with some of his best friends, including a man named Joe Price. Robert went on to graduate in 1996 and proceeded to go straight into law school at the University of Pennsylvania in 1999. Now in 2002, Robert ended up meeting the woman of his dreams. He met a woman named Kathy and immediately knew that she was going to be his wife. Prior to Kathy, Robert did not have a lot of dating history, so you can imagine Robert's friend's surprise when he was so adamant, so certain, after just a few times of meeting Kathy that she was the one. But Robert kept true to his word, because on June 7th, 2003, Robert and Kathy ended up getting married. Now, as far as his career goes, Robert was working at Covington and Burling, which was a law firm located in Washington, D.C., before he decided he wanted to leave the firm and work for a company called Radio Free Asia, where he would work as general counsel. Radio Free Asia was a government-funded, nonprofit Asian news station, and this was something that Robert was incredibly passionate about. Throughout Robert's entire life, he wanted to be on the right side of change. He wanted to be the one who was a part of making a difference in the world, and he truly felt like working for Radio Free Asia was a step in that direction. Radio Free Asia was also located in Washington, D.C., so luckily, Robert and Kathy were able to stay living there, and a lot of Robert's friends lived there as well. Robert's friend Joe Price, that I mentioned from William & Mary, lived in D.C., as well as Robert's college roommate, Jason, who Robert remained extremely close with. So for all things considered, from an outsider's perspective looking in, Robert had it all. He had the dream job. He had his wife. He had a great social circle. Everything seemed to be going so great in Robert's life until it wasn't. This case begins on August 2nd of 2006. This day started out like any normal day for Robert and Kathy. They got up early, got on the metro train, and rode that all the way into DC, just as they did every morning. They got off the train together, gave each other a kiss goodbye, and went on their way. Now the only difference on August 2nd was that Robert knew that he was going to be having to stay later at work than usual. It was going to be a long night for Robert and he was planning on meeting with the overnight crew for Radio Free Asia. So because of this, he told Kathy not to wait around for him and to just head on back and instead of getting home later than usual, he would instead spend the night at one of his friend's houses. Like I mentioned, Robert had multiple friends throughout the the DC area, and Kathy and Robert's house was about 35 minutes away. So because Robert knew that it was going to be pretty late by the time he actually got home, and the fact that Kathy always had to wake up relatively early for work and he didn't want to disrupt her, Robert decided that he would spend the night with a friend instead. He texted several friends that he knew in the area, including Joe Price. Now, Joe was actually the first one out of the friends that Robert texted that responded and told Robert that he was more than welcome to stay at his house. And so that is why Robert landed on Joe's house. And it really did seem to work out for everyone in everyone's best interest because Robert and Joe had a business project that they wanted to discuss anyways. They figured that this would be a great time to do so. So Robert made his plan to spend the night at Joe's. Now let's talk about Joe's house for a second. Joe was the owner of a four bedroom, three and a half bathroom home on Swan Street. The home is approximately 3,000 square feet and about a mile away from where Robert's office was. Now, all of the houses on Swan Street are incredibly close together. They're actually considered row houses where you share your walls with your neighbors. If you're familiar with the streets of New York or Boston or DC, they have these types of homes. Now, inside of the house on Swan Street is where Joe Price lived along with two other men. These men were Dylan Ward and Victor Zarbowski. Now, Joe, Dylan, and Victor all had a three-way relationship, so they were in a thruple together. They described each other as a family. Joe and Victor had began their relationship first, and Dylan was the third to join the group. Now, because of Dylan being the new addition to this thruple, there was a difference in power dynamics. There was a difference in equality as far as the attention went throughout everyone. It was something that was hard for them to navigate. So Dylan was definitely more of a third wheel at this time. However, the other two, Joe and Victor, were actively trying to work Dylan into their relationship. So Dylan did live in the house as well. Like I mentioned, it was a four-bedroom house. Joe and Victor shared the master bedroom and Dylan slept in a guest room. Joe Price was a prominent attorney who worked for a law firm and he was also the founder of a foundation called Equality for Virginia, which was an advocacy organization that pushed for equality amongst everyone. Now, when we're looking at the time frame, you have to remember this was 2006 and gay marriage was not legalized at that point. So Joe and Victor really were on the forefront of trying to make a difference with that and trying to make their voices heard on behalf of everyone in that community. And Dylan, on the other hand, had a degree in children's literature and he was often working odd jobs on the side. So now let's go back to the night of August 2nd. Robert ended up staying late in the office until approximately 10.20 p.m. He ended up calling Joe's cell phone at 10.24 p.m. to let him know that he was heading out of the office and would be there shortly. Robert hailed a cab and was able to get to Joe's house at approximately ten. 30 p.m. Now, this would actually be the first time that Robert would ever spend the night at Joe's house. He had been there before, he had hung out there before, but he had never spent the night there before. So Robert arrived to Joe's home at around 10.30pm and it was a little bit later at around 11pm where everyone started to get settled in for the night. To give you the layout of the home, on the first floor you had the living room, the kitchen, front door, back door. The second floor is where Dylan's bedroom was. Dylan's bedroom was on the second floor along with the office that had a pullout couch, which was where Robert was going to be sleeping for the night on the third floor is where you had the master bedroom which was where joe and victor slept so that's the layout of the home and again at 11 p.m everyone's dying down for the night joe and victor go upstairs to their room and turn on the tv dylan goes to his room and showers and robert goes into the office where he is going to be staying that night so everyone goes their separate ways for the night However, around 11.49 p.m., something happened. Joe, Victor, and Dylan were all woken up to the sounds of screaming and grunting coming from Robert's room. They all ran into the room and that is when they found Robert laying on the pullout couch stabbed. Now, this all happened over the course of 79 minutes. You have to remember that. By the time that Robert arrived at the home to the time where he had been stabbed, it was 79 minutes. EMTs arrived on the scene at approximately 11.54 p.m. Now, when they arrived, Victor was standing out on the front porch porch steps. He was wearing a white robe and told EMTs that there had been a stabbing on the second floor. Now, as far as body language goes, the EMTs noticed that Victor's head was down, his eyes were shut, and his body was physically facing away from the EMTs. EMTs continued into the home and walked up the steps where they found Dylan standing in the doorway of his bedroom wearing nothing but a white towel towel around his waist. EMTs then turned the corner and walked down the hall towards the room that Robert was staying in. They were able to see that Joe was sitting at Robert's bedside with his back facing the EMTs. Joe was sitting next to Robert wearing only his underwear and he told the EMTs, I heard a scream. After telling the EMTs what he had heard, Joe moved out of the way, and that is when the EMTs discovered Robert laying on his back suffering from stab wounds. Now, one of the first things that the paramedics noticed about the scene in general and Robert's injuries was the lack of blood. With such a severe chest wound, EMTs were expecting a serious amount of blood on the scene. However, there was little to none. There was barely any blood on the bed, very little blood surrounding Robert, not even a lot of blood on Robert. And the way that the EMTs described it was that it looked like Robert had been stabbed, showered, and then placed in the bed. They immediately put Robert into an ambulance and began driving to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, the EMTs noticed that Robert's stab wounds were almost three identical incisions on his chest. Robert was connected to all of the monitors, however, there was no pulse or heartbeat. And it was clear to the EMTs at that point that Robert had already bled out. It was right as Robert arrived at the hospital that he was officially pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. on August 3rd, 2006. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. The lead detective on this case is a man named Brian Wade. And according to Detective Wade, he claimed that when he first arrived at the crime scene on the house on Swan Street, he noticed that this was not your typical crime scene. The house on Swan Street was a very prominent townhouse. Right now, it's actually estimated to be worth about $2.5 million. So it was right about a million back in 2006. It was very well decorated. It was well-organized and a pristinely clean house. The second thing that Detective Wade noticed was that all three of the men that night, all three of the men with Robert, meaning Dylan, Joe, and Victor, were also very clean. They had all appeared that they had showered by the time that Detective Wade arrived on the scene, and not only that, by the time Detective Wade got there, all three of the men were in long white robes. This was like the white robes that you get at hotels. Like, think of those types of terry cloth white robes. And this was very off-putting and raised red flags immediately for all of the detectives. All three of them are wearing these white robes and they look like they had just been showered, all in the time frame that their friend had been stabbed. And there seemed to be a lack of urgency when it came to any of the three men asking about Robert, wanting to know if he was okay, showing any emotion other than defensiveness. And at first, at the house on Swan Street, detectives sat all three of the men down together. And immediately, Joe began telling this story. He started claiming that someone had to have broken into their home. An intruder had to have come in and murdered Robert, who just so happened to be spending the night, this one night, the only night that he had ever spent the night at this house, is when he gets killed. Joe said that the back door of their home had been left unlocked, so whoever had broken in more than likely used that as their point of entry. Joe claimed that around 11:45 45 p.m. Joe and Victor heard a scream and ran into Robert's room and saw that he had been stabbed. Now police recognized during this initial conversation with Joe and the other two men that Joe was definitely the ringleader out of the three. He was the one that was doing the talking. He was the one that was telling the story and any time either Dylan or Victor tried to to chime in on the conversation joe would flash them a look and it was a look of don't speak So it didn't take police long to figure out what the dynamic was between the three of them, meaning who called the shots. So because of this, police decided that their best course of action was going to be taking all three men down to the police station and separating them into different rooms and conducting individual interviews with each of them. Because the likelihood that all three of these men, this was the police's mindset, the likelihood of all three of these men having the same exact story, the same exact timeline without making a slip up or cracking somewhere. That seemed very slim to none. So that was their next course of action. Now, when it came to the timeline of the night, all three of the men stated that when Robert arrived at the house at approximately 10.30 p.m., Dylan had offered him a glass of wine, and they all were just sitting around the kitchen island, chit-chatting, catching up, having a glass of wine. They were catching up about their jobs, about their personal life. Robert was talking about him and Kathy, and it was in the middle of this conversation that Joe had actually walked outside. He walked outside through the back door, which was right off of the kitchen. He walks outside because according to Dylan and Victor and Joe himself, he saw a spider, So he was trying to get the spider to go outside. So he opens up the back door, lets the spider out. And that is why the three of them claim that the back door had to have been left unlocked because Joe forgot to lock it when he came back inside. So while Joe was dealing with this spider incident, Dylan and Victor claimed that at this point, the two of them brought Robert up to the second story of the house where they showed him where he would be sleeping that night. Joe followed up the stairs shortly after to make sure that Robert was comfortable, and according to the three men, this is where everyone went their separate ways. Robert claimed that he was going to take a shower and get straight to sleep, while Joe, Dylan, and Victor all went their separate ways as well. Victor and Joe went up to their room and turned the TV on and started watching Project Runway, which ended right around 11 p.m. Right at the end of Project Runway, Victor and Joe turned the TV off and tried to get some sleep. However, a little after 11 p.m. is when Joe and Victor were woken up by the sound of the chime alarm. I'm sure you guys have seen this or heard this before. You might have them yourselves. The alarms that go off every time someone opens or shuts a door. Now, Joe also had one of these alarms on his front door and his back door. So, Joe and Victor were woken up to the sound of these chimes. And before they were able to do anything else, the two of them claimed that they heard screaming and grunting coming from the downstairs bedrooms. Now, immediately, Joe and Victor said that when they heard these screams, they raced down the stairs directly to Robert's room, where they found Robert laying on the pullout couch with a bloody knife laying on. Flat on Robert's chest. Now, according to Joe, he claimed that he moved the knife from Robert's chest to the nightstand right next to him and then ordered Victor to call 911. So that is the timeline of events that Victor and Joe claim. Now, like I said, Dylan has his own separate bedroom. It's also on the second floor. And according to Dylan, he claimed that after hearing the screaming from Joe and Victor, that is what woke him up. So he wasn't originally woken up, so he claims from the chimes, nor was he woken up from the screaming, the same screaming, that Joe and Victor had heard. However, when he heard Joe and Victor screaming, that is when he woke up. According to Dylan, he claimed he opened the door, saw Joe and Victor, and claimed that Victor was very hysterical. He was pacing, he was freaking out, he was afraid to go downstairs, because according to all three of the men, all three of them claimed and thought that there was an intruder. They were all under the impression that an intruder had entered the house, come upstairs, stabbed Robert, went back downstairs, and left. So That was a story that all three of the men were sticking to, but for police, this theory did not make a lot of sense. The first reason being, the knife that was found next to Robert, the supposed murder weapon. This murder weapon, this knife, came out of the butcher block from inside of the house. So it didn't make a lot of sense for an intruder who was going to come into the house, whether his purpose was to rob the house or to kill someone inside of the home. Typically, intruders are going to bring their own weapon with them. They aren't going to just hope that they find one inside of the house that they're robbing. And if we are going with the intruder theory, like I've mentioned several times, this was a very, very nice home. There were a lot of valuables, a lot of electronics, a lot of jewelry, a lot of things that would have been of value to someone who wanted to rob the house. However, everything was in perfect condition. Nothing was ransacked. Nothing was stolen. There wasn't any furniture turned over. Everything looked exactly how it was supposed to. And just from a logistics standpoint, police had a hard time believing that an intruder would come into this home with the sole purpose of murdering the one person who did not live there. They believe it was very unlikely for an intruder to come into the home, grab a knife out of the butcher block, walk upstairs, kill Robert walk downstairs and walk out. The likelihood of that just did not seem plausible, especially when you look at the layout of the home. On the second floor, like I've mentioned, you have Dylan's bedroom and you have the room that Robert was sleeping in. And for the sake of the rest of this case, I'm just going to coin it as Robert's room. So you have Dylan's room, you have Robert's room. When you walk up the stairs from the first floor to the second floor, Dylan's bedroom is right at the top of the stairs. By the time you get to this top the stairs, you are facing Dylan's door. So police didn't understand why, if an intruder wanted to come in for the sole purpose of killing someone, why he would skip Dylan's room, which was the easiest of access, and instead round the corner down the hall to Robert's room. When police looked inside Robert's room as well, they found Robert's wallet, they found his watch, they found his Blackberry. All of his valuables were in there and nothing was stolen. So let's talk about the crime scene. One of the big things that police noticed, as I mentioned before, was the lack of blood found on the scene. Detectives have stated that when they arrive on a scene to someone who has been stabbed once, it looks like a bloodbath, as they describe it. They describe it as there's blood everywhere, everything is a mess. However, for Robert who had been stabbed three times, there was little to no blood. The only bloodstains that were found were the ones on the comforter and the pillow. Something that police were all able to agree on was that this did not look like the scene from a violent stabbing. They also wanted to take a look at this mysterious back door that was left unlocked. Now, the backyard area itself was very small. It was a small courtyard that had a circular patio table with some chairs and a seven-foot security fence with a door that was deadbolted surrounding it. Now, police really had to wonder if someone would have been able to hop the fence because that's the only way they would have been able to get through the back door. Now, even if they did hop the fence, another big question here was how would they have known that the back door was open? Were they hopping the fence and just hoping for the best? Were they going to hop the fence and try and break in anyways? What was the mindset behind it if there was an intruder who hopped the fence? Along with that, nothing in the backyard area seemed to be messed up. There didn't seem to be any evidence that someone did hop this fence. The fence itself had cobwebs around it, certain layers of dust, and nothing surrounding or on the fence was disrupted. Something else that police realized during their investigation was how easy it was to hear things throughout the house, how quickly sound traveled throughout the house. This was an a hundred year old house at this point and the wooden floors creaked very very loudly so much so that victor actually stated that if he was in his bedroom he would have been able to hear someone walking up the stairs so this wasn't a very soundproof house this wasn't stairs these weren't stairs that had carpet on them these were strictly wooden creaky floors. And according to the men in the house, usually they would always be able to hear someone coming up the stairs. So it was interesting for police that just on this specific night, no one heard anything. Now, when trying to construct the timeline of this case, police started going door-to-door to some of Joe's neighbors to ask if they had heard anything from the night prior. Like I mentioned, these houses were incredibly close together. They shared walls with one another. So when police went next door to Joe's next-door neighbor's house, they found an elderly couple living at the home. They had informed the couple about what had happened and asked if they They had heard any screams or loud noises from the night before. Now, according to this couple, they claimed that they did hear a scream sometime between 11 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. And the reason that they know this is because this couple religiously watched a specific show every single night that started at 11 and ended at 11.30, and they heard the scream in the time period of that show, so they were able to narrow down a 30-minute time frame. But what gets interesting here is that the 911 call was made at 11:49 p.m. So this showed police that, based on the timeline that the neighbor heard the scream, Joe Victor and Dylan waited between 19 to 49 minutes making that call. So what this told police is that if a scream did come out of the house from either 11 to 11.30, sometime in between there, then that means that these men possibly waited between 19 to 49 minutes before making that 911 call. And if that's true, it really does kind of deconstruct the guys' theory as a whole because they claimed it was this fast-moving, everything-happened-so-fast type of scene where they heard the chime and then they heard the scream and then they ran downstairs and they found Robert. But if this scream happened in between the first half hour of 11 and then the 911 call wasn't made until 1149, what happened during then? All right, you guys, that is all for me today. I hope you are looking forward to the second part of the episode next week. And like I said in the beginning, you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week to finish this case up with you guys. And until then, stay safe.